From WPVM LP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons. And I'm Lexi Harvey. And this is Steady Holiday. So stop. 
Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. I think it's safe to say that during the course of the pandemic, particularly during the strictest parts of the lockdowns, we all developed some kind of eating habits that were a bit different than our norms. For me, during the month that all the businesses shuttered, I was in the middle of taking a break from alcohol, so my body was craving sugar, which is something I don't normally keep around because I'm hypoglycemic. But with nearly everything shuttered, I found myself digging chocolate chips out of the freezer and topping spoonfuls of peanut butter with them in an attempt to make something close to a peanut butter cup. Oddly enough, it's still something that I crave now and then, and I still keep chocolate chips in the freezer just for this purpose. It's funny how these eating habits develop, and how they sometimes seem to stick. 
That's how New York writer Sumitra Matai found herself balancing a craving, childcare, and a whole world on a stepladder in her apartment kitchen. After I've put my kids to bed, cleaned the kitchen, and picked up the Legos, I climb a stepladder to reach the bag of pirate's booty hidden high in the pantry. Standing at the kitchen counter, I eat handfuls of this puffed rice and corn snack straight from the bag, as white cheese flakes dust my cheeks and pajamas like pale yellow snow. A nugget of pirate's booty is like the love child of a styrofoam packing peanut and a cube of cheese. They are lighter and more airy than Cheetos, though the texture is similar. I'm impressed by the presence of buttermilk and black pepper on the ingredient list on the back of the bag. It's gluten-free and mysteriously contains two grams of protein. The packaging makes a trio of claims. Baked, not fried. Made with real cheese. No artificial flavors or preservatives. But I don't eat these crunchy, craggy morsels for nourishment. I eat them because I've run out of willpower and I'm trying not to drink wine on weekdays. The trouble begins when I'm putting my kids to bed. On any given night, my three-year-old demands a snack, a drink of water, lotion for the itchy spot on her right thigh, and a different pair of socks, the ones with the bunnies on them. She says she needs to poop, then screams when I put her on the toilet. We argue over the temperature of her milk, first too hot, then too cold, before she throws the bottle on the ground. She and my seven-year-old son fight over a stuffed dog, and he falls and hits his head on the corner of a chest of drawers, necessitating an ice pack. They want to FaceTime with my husband, who is traveling, but he doesn't answer his phone. To distract them from their disappointment, I let them make a video for him, a rambling montage of half-sung lullabies, giggles, and screen kisses. I read about penguins for my son and the book Room on the Broom twice for my daughter. At 8.25 p.m., when we are all sulky and overtired, she announces, I don't want to go to sleep. Against my better judgment, I yell, Jesus Christ! Both children start crying, spooked by the frustration in my voice. It takes another 20 minutes for us to calm down. Feeling ashamed for snapping, I give in to a weary tenderness. I nuzzle their soft cheeks, massage their backs, sing Twinkle Twinkle, and leave the room in a waft of humidifier mist. In the hallway, I watch their bodies writhe and settle into silence on the live camera app on my phone. Then I take off my bra, the most anticipated moment of the day, and change out of my work clothes into sweatpants torn at the knees and an oversized hoodie I bought years ago at the Fort Lauderdale airport during an extra long and chilly layover. I go around the house, picking things up and putting them back where they belong. I return the books back to the shelves, reunite the teacups with the talking teapot, and rescue the strewn Legos. Finally... I reward myself with a bag of pirate's booty, shining on the top shelf like the star on a Christmas tree. Pirate's booty became my go-to snack during New York City's first lockdown, arriving in the grocery delivery whenever I managed to secure a time slot. In the early days of COVID, I smoothed the bag with an antibacterial wipe before opening it, along with my other groceries. Any object from the outside world inspired paranoia, even after more research emerged and recommendations shifted. Like many of us, lockdown forced me to become a better home cook. Day after day, I fought the battles of communal breakfast, lunch, and dinner, finding my way through the ever-shifting maze of my family's moods and preferences. In the face of the unfolding apocalypse, I rationed ingredients I wasn't sure we would find again and felt the constant pressure to reinvent our repertoire. Snacking alone at the end of the night became a sacred time. 
The OCD-like rituals and full-body fear of 2020 have subsided, but pirate's booty remains. The craving comes when I'm stressed or PMSing, when eating my feelings is the only way through. I mention the ritual to my therapist on a Monday at 12.45 p.m. as I pace up and down Lexington Avenue, avoiding my colleagues and the open layout of my office. We talk about the importance of coping mechanisms and how the ongoing pandemic has us all dangling from a precipice, constantly grasping for normal. I promise to make time for baths and walks, the simple activities of a child, now a luxury as an adult. She suggests a technique called prescribing the problem and asks me to choose a few days of the week when I will binge rather than letting the feeling overtake me at random. I agree to try, to keep trying. The pirate's booty bag features a mustachioed pirate and his red parrot, absurdly named Crunchy, both grinning like potheads. With its playfully transgressive name, pirate's booty is advertised as a healthy, gluten-free kids snack. But in my household, I have to hide the bag from my children. My son is allergic to dairy, and one flake of dehydrated cheese would give him an asthma attack and a swollen eye. Every time I add pirate's booty to my digital cart, sneaking it in alongside kale, cucumbers, and sweet potatoes, I'm aware of my transgression. Yet the guilt doesn't stop me from enjoying it, gobbling furtively when no one is around. The illustration of the pirate character with his provocative grin and bulging eye was apparently based on the brand founder Robert Ehrlich, who created the Puffs in 1987. He sold the brand to B&G Foods Incorporated for $195 million in 2013. Four years later, it was sold to the Hershey Company for $420 million. I cannot comprehend that a snack with the word booty in the title could command such a price. But such is the power couple of capitalism and sodium. I get my penchant for salty snacks from my father, an inveterate snacker. Though he lives alone, his pantry is always stocked with extra-large bags of Doritos. When my parents were together, I used to hide in the basement of my childhood home, eating his stash of chips, watching MTV, and blocking out the unrest upstairs. As long as I had snacks, I felt safe. I think of my younger self as I stuff handfuls of pirate's booty into my mouth, trying to ignore my existential dread. Some nights, I can't stop thinking about global warming, the destruction unfolding at record speed. Other nights, I fixate helplessly on school shootings and the parents who can no longer put their kids to bed. I know I should join a protest or sign a petition, but it all seems futile. I think about the suits in charge and wonder how they sleep at night when I can't. I want to stomp and scream like a toddler and demand change right now. Instead, I focus on the small tasks within my control. I sweep the dinner crumbs off the floor and take out the trash. I write down appointments on the calendar, filling the small squares with meaning. I will myself to think forward, to believe in the future, however imperfect. I thought I would have understood the world better by middle age, but I am more confused than ever. Sometimes I feel as helpless as a blindfolded captive, stumbling out onto the plank, resisting the pull of the wind and the waves, the endless abyss of the sea down below. But for now, I'm on a ladder, reaching for hidden treasure. That was Aaron Kellum reading Sumitra Matai's Hidden Treasure. You can find that story and its accompanying illustration on our website, dirty-spoon.com.
Oh, oh, oh. 
listen to this show a lot, you know that for the most part, the people who write our stories don't read them on the air. And there's a couple reasons for that. For one, we're based in Asheville, and our writers are all over the world and all over the country, and we can't always get them in a studio. They don't always have recording equipment. 
But also sometimes it's just nice to bring fresh voices into the mix. And we try to do that in how we source our stories, and we try to do that in how we pick readers, which I guess, Lexi, you can probably speak to the way we we source stories and the way we find them, and that anybody listening to this can submit. Yeah, a lot of writers don't always want to read their own story either. So it's nice that we can kind of give that option of having your story read, having it um, maybe sound a little bit different to you from from a fresh voice or a different voice than your own. One of the ways that we source stories is through message boards and Facebook groups, uh, past contributors. And just people submitting through email, too. And just, yeah, people submitting through email. And that's the same thing for readers. Like, if anybody listening wants to read a story and you are in the Asheville area, you can easily volunteer to come read a story, and we'll send you one when we find one that sounds like something you'd like. Just send, if you want to write for us, if you want to read for us, just submit your email through to our email, which is thedirtyspoonavl at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you when if we we need you on air. So one of the great things that I love about the Dirty Spoon is that it feels and sounds like a mixtape. We have kind of the the music plus the stories and it has a lot of texture to it, just like a mixtape from when I would listen to them when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what we've always tried to design it to be. There's never a theme to our shows. The theme is more of a feeling that kind of runs through the whole thing and the way that the the mix of the music and the the stories make your mood change simultaneously and uh and s- sometimes that takes a lot of back-end production of like figuring out what music to pair with what stories and how to how to create the whole production and sometimes that requires a voice actor to get a certain feeling out of the story and other times it requires the person who wrote it to get their feeling out of that story with uh with this next piece um Janine Dehoney is from New York and she tells the story of her father was as a jazz musician and the breakfast that he would cook and the music in the house and the smells of the kitchen. And it was really hard to imagine that with anyone's voice, but hers, which I think you will all agree when you hear her voice. The name of this story is my father's red eye gravy and all that jazz. I blame my father for making me fall in love with jazz and red eye gravy Grown up in Brownsville, East New York, in our fifth-floor housing development apartment, Friday and Saturday nights found it transformed into my father's makeshift jazz conservatory. My father's dream was to be a jazz musician. For a while, he played a few gigs at clubs in Harlem, but the money he made playing music wasn't enough to sustain us as a family, only the urgings in his soul. So he drove a delivery truck until he was able to get a civil service janitorial job at the post office. My father's nickname was Sonny, and that was what he allowed me and my older sister to call him instead of dad. Although others shook their heads thinking it was bad-mannered, to him it made him the cool dad. Our father loved being a girl dad. You could just see it in the way he gleamed. Sometimes I think we had him wrapped around our fingers, my sister and I, for he let us know on many occasions when we were getting piggyback rides around the house or watching television or going to the candy store to get our favorite licorice sticks 
and so many other times that we were his world. He once made a record that I bragged to all of my friends about and showed off like a prize heirloom whenever they came to our apartment after school. I remember placing it on the record player one day when he wasn't home, and the needle scratched it when I moved it to another part of the song. I hid it for a week, worried he'd be upset, but when he found it, he wasn't, at least not in front of me. After my father would set up his metal rickety music stand that he bought from a music shop in Manhattan in my bedroom, put in a pencil behind his ear so that he could make notations on his sheet music to play his saxophone, he would put a jazz album on a record player and then make his special breakfast. As Miles Davis or Betty Carter or Sonny Rollins or Sarah Vaughn blared on our record player, he would get out the pots and pans to start cooking. Sunny side eggs with his and my mother's yolks runnier than mine, thick country ham slices, creamy grits, and always red-eyed gravy. Red-eyed gravy was a southern dish passed down to my father from my grandmother. I remember visiting her in her apartment in Brooklyn and seeing her making it as a child. I remember sitting at her kitchen dinette after waking up from a sleepover with my cousins who lived beneath her. My grandfather called it poor man's gravy, but I never liked that name. Even though my grandparents struggled to raise their family and lived in a tenement, my grandmother always said she was rich because she had all of us, her family. While at my grandmother's, my cousins and I would all trek up one flight of stairs to her kitchen. Our grandfather would entertain us with his humorous tall tales, and we'd count the minutes until she'd set everyone's food on the table and we could eat. My grandmother always made buttermilk biscuits, and I'd always have a biscuit to sop up every drop of her red-eye gravy. Red-eye gravy was made from the drippings of country ham and strong-brewed black coffee. It got its name from the appearance of circles of ham fat floating on top of the coffee that gave the appearance of a red eye staring up at you. To get the best country ham, both my grandmother and father would go to the neighborhood butcher to get it. My grandmother's butcher was just around the corner from her apartment. It was the only butcher she patronized until it closed many years later when I was almost a teenager. This small butcher shop with piles of sawdust on the floor and the butcher asking about everyone in your family and always giving his regulars a little extra at a great price and a lollipop for the kids was displaced by a large chain supermarket and a society that wanted to do one-stop shopping. After my father made breakfast in his famed red-eye gravy and as jazz melodies filled every crevice of our two-bedroom apartment on the fifth floor, with each forkful we put into our mouths bubbly with conversations that we didn't have enough time for during the week, we'd bop our heads and tap our feet to the jazzy beat. Sometimes when our plates were clear, my father would grant me to dance. The jazz, the sweet sound of the saxophone, the piano, trumpet, or lyrics, or whatever jazz artist was playing on our record player while we ate the special breakfast with red-eyed gravy that my father prepared made our hearts sing, especially my father's. 
jazz playing it on his golden saxophone or listening to it as he sat in his recliner had always carried him away from the things he didn't talk about, his past inner wounds to infuse him with peace. As I got older, I would stand beside my father, studying his movements as he made his red-eyed gravy, just as I did my grandmother. I'd watch as he'd take the country ham slice out of the butcher paper, fried in a cast iron skillet, seasoned with love, as my grandmother would say, before mixing the ham drippings with his leftover black coffee in a coffee maker to deglaze the pan. My father never veered from how my grandmother would make hers, except the one time he ran out of coffee and used a can of Coke. It was still good, but we all preferred the original way it was made. Sometimes, when we had leftover red-eyed gravy after breakfast, he'd put it over rice and whatever meat we had for dinner. I carried that recipe for red-eyed gravy passed down from my grandmother to my father and then to myself into adulthood. Although my own children didn't love it as much as I did, it was a familiar rite of passage I tried to uphold, if only for a special holiday breakfast and even if I was the lone devourer. Always there was the accompaniment of jazz music blaring as I two-stepped around my own kitchen, staring and sautéing what was in each pan on the burner, because for me, music and food is synonymous with healing one's soul. I now know how it healed my father. As a black man, he had his share of battles, especially when he was a black army serviceman stationed in Germany. He fought two wars as a serviceman and as a black man. It was difficult for him to get good paying jobs to take care of his family when he came back home. And it was difficult for his musical soul when he got a job and could pursue his dream career as a saxophonist. He chose to give it up, but it weighed heavily upon him, as it would have been for me if I could never put my words on paper again, if I had to choose between family and writing. My beloved jazz artist father died in 1996. He had been sick for many years with kidney problems and was on dialysis. He had long stopped making those Saturday morning breakfasts with his signature red-eye gravy after my sister and I left. He and my mother's nest and journeyed into the different seasons of our life. But there will always be wonderful memories that envelope me, catch my heart, that makes me both smile and cry and wish I were by his side staring what was aromatic in the skillet. A memory that hums in my mind like a song of our special Saturday morning breakfast of that delectable red-eye gravy and all that jazz. That was Janine DeHoney reading her story, My Father's Red-Eye Gravy and All That Jazz. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Confessing that I love you Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you Honest I do Need you every hour In your eyes I read such strange things But your lips deny 
they're true Will your answer really change things Making me blue Oh, I'm afraid someday you leave me Saying, can't we still be friends When you go, you know you grieve me All my life on you depends Am I guessing that you love me Dreaming dreams of you in vain I'm confessing that I love you over again
between you and me Katie the heart For most of us who love to cook, there's a stash of recipes somewhere. Perhaps you keep yours in a notebook categorized by appetizers, entrees, and desserts. Or maybe you're the type to store them in a rad vintage trapper keeper, arranged in alphabetical order. Do you print yours from the internet or tear them out of a magazine or newspaper just like my grandma did? Or are you a soulless, technology-dependent robot like John and keep yours in an uncategorized iCloud note? Whatever your preferred archiving or cataloging method, I bet there are a few recipes in your stash with a story behind them. But do any of them bring a tear to your eye? Writer Lydia Quatton Epic keeps her recipes on index cards, but there's one particular one that gets her misty-eyed every time she pulls it out. Here's Lindsay Lee reading her story, The Sweetness of Pumpkin Bread. Most of my recipes stashed away in my recipe box are connected to a story, a memory. Fresh strawberry muffins that my sister loved as a care package treat. Minestrone soup I made while watching our favorite college team win a championship. The smoothie creation that kept me energized through my first pregnancy. Each recipe carries a story and a memory. In a busy, fast-paced society that eats on the go or wants food fresh and fast, we can rush through meals instead of savoring them. I am certainly guilty of that. That's why recipes like these are a treasure. They are personal extensions of my story, mile markers on the journey of life. Recipes can be an invitation to enjoy a flavor and savor a memory. I started creating and collecting recipe cards in my early 20s, sometimes on index cards, sometimes a printed and hastily folded printout. I keep my recipe cards in two boxes on a cozy top shelf in my kitchen, just above my favorite spices. Every time I reach up for my recipe collection, I smell cinnamon and ginger and know something special is about to happen. Originally, they all fit neatly into one box, but over time, they've expanded into two. When I'm in the mood for a particular recipe, my recipe card box is like my collection of lab notes what worked and what didn't, all my cooking reflections. I love attaching personal memories to recipes by writing little notes in the corners. 
For instance, my apple walnut crisp recipe I made for my coworkers at my first job. They were brave enough to try my baking experiments. And my latest recipe for pad krapau has a happy face on it. My selective eating daughter loves it and asks for seconds. If there's a recipe I don't have, I search the internet for the best. Sometimes I use my quote-unquote research to create my own version or print out and try the best one I find. If it's a winner, into the recipe box it goes. There's one particular recipe card that every time I pick it up, tears well up in my eyes. The memories and thanks come spilling in like a wave of gold. This might seem overly dramatic in talking about a recipe card, but you must know the story behind the recipe to understand. I received the pumpkin bread recipe almost 20 years ago. It was on a family reunion trip to visit my California parents, Fritz and Alice. They were a remarkable couple with a great love for food and family. I connected with them during my first internship. I traveled to Silicon Valley in the summer of 2001 for an internship. The area was beautiful with lush trees, sunny skies, and winds perfect for kite flying and land windsurfing. As a NASA honors student, my scholarship included working at various NASA sites across the country. This was my first stint and I had no idea what to expect. I felt nervous and excited being thousands of miles and three time zones away from my family. Traveling to California was a big step in becoming a world explorer. The valley was a melting pot, from the farmer's market to art museums to the local parks. Asian, Hispanic, indigenous tribes, Eastern European. Everywhere I went, there were new people to meet and cultures to learn from, and I was determined to take it all in. My first bold act was going to a new church by myself. I wanted to go somewhere similar to my church back east, but close enough for a short cab ride. Map in hand, I looked up my options in the yellow pages and found what I hoped would be a good fit. That morning, I called a cab and arrived bright and early for service. I'm sure they were surprised to see a foreign teenager show up at their front door that day. You can't imagine how glad I was to find this small church to be filled with kind, loving, genuine people. I felt so at home there. One of the first people I met was Fritz. He was a warm, funny man with great stories and a grandfatherly charm. His wife Alice was also sweet and welcoming. Standing barely five feet tall, this kind, wise Japanese woman became like a mother to me that summer. I affectionately called them my California parents ever since. In California, I felt far away from home and in need of a family. I lived in apartments with other college kids, but craved genuine relationships. Perhaps this is what drew me close to Fritz and Alice. They looked past my bubbly personality and saw a girl who was looking for acceptance and guidance. I am so grateful they noticed my desire for connection and took me under their wing. Every weekend, they would pick me up to go to church activities, play board games, and cook together. We enjoyed each other's company so much. Alice was an amazing cook, and I had no idea how to make anything. I would do my best to help out as she gracefully moved through her kitchen, making yummy creations from scratch. Afterward, we would sit down at their little kitchen table and listen to Fritz's latest news or one of his hilarious stories. My personal favorite recipe was her pumpkin bread. 
She found it as a recipe clipping in the newspaper back in the 1950s and had kept it in her stash ever since. I remember the way her kitchen filled with the scent of brown sugar, pumpkin, and cinnamon when she baked it. Before pumpkin spice was an autumn craze, Alice had me hooked. What impressed me more than Alice's cooking and Fritz's jokes were their life stories. I loved listening to them recall growing up during the Depression and World War II. As a Japanese-American in the 1940s, Alice's family was quote-unquote relocated from San Francisco to an internment camp in the Midwest. It was because of that move she met Fritz, a farmer's son of German descent living in Iowa. They met, fell in love, and decided to get married. As an interracial couple in America in the 1950s, this was a dangerous and taboo choice. Decades later, remembering how they cared for one another, their marriage was a testament of amazing love and strong faith. Over the years, I stayed in contact with them. I would call and catch up over the phone, send and receive birthday and holiday cards, ask how their family and friends were doing. When I graduated college and landed a job with an airline, I flew out to see them for Fritz's birthday. It was a wonderful trip. It was on that fateful trip that I made my first recipe card, pumpkin bread. Alice made loaves of pumpkin bread while we talked about my new job, faith, and my next steps. I had just left a tough relationship, and I wasn't sure I wanted to get married or start a family. And like a good mom, she listened patiently and shared her wisdom. Bread baking in the oven, I asked if I could copy her recipe on a card. Yes, of course, she said, handing me a 4 by 6 index card. Copying the style I had seen her use on her other recipes, I copied the title, ingredients, and directions from the newspaper clipping to the card. Instinctively, I added the date and source of the recipe to the top corner. My first true recipe card was complete. That night, we gathered with friends on the couch around the piano to celebrate Fritz. We talked, shared stories, sang songs, and enjoyed one another's company for hours. I had never experienced a birthday like that before, and I haven't done that again since. Little did I know that two years later, I would be married. My husband is a different ethnicity than me. We are an interracial couple, just like my sweet California parents. They taught me so much about what it means to stand for what you believe in, even in the midst of trials. In the 21st century, my husband and I faced people who did not approve of a black woman marrying a white man. Denied service at restaurants, strange looks in the stores. It was shocking, but real as an interracial couple in the South. Then I would remember Fritz and Alice's stories of traveling to a different state just to get married and facing suspicion as a German-Japanese couple just after the war. If they could withstand the tough times, so could we. Recipes can come in many forms, passed down over generations, shared by good friends, posted on a Pinterest board. What makes a great recipe is one with heart. Food is more than just putting ingredients in a bowl or pan and applying heat. It's more than carb count, fats, or protein. Food is what connects cultures and people. It's how we create traditions and make memories. Those memories season our meals, snacks, and desserts with love. So when I start to measure out the flour and sugar, all the memories begin to flow. Singing in church, potlucks with foods from around the world. As I scoop out pumpkin and whisk up eggs, I remember our car rides, 
laughter and picking persimmons in the backyard. When I pour the batter and slide the loaf pans into the warm oven, more sweet memories come to mind. Making vegetarian sushi from scratch, studying the Bible together, Fritz playing the piano and Alice's cozy sitting room, campground weekends in the mountains, sweet hugs from wrinkled hands. As I cut up my freshly made pumpkin bread, all that love flows out in every warm, crumbly slice. I love my recipe stories. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Steady Holiday, Best Friend, Rye, Peggy Lee, The Hackles, Braids, Temples, Ernest Hood, Oscar Peterson, Thelonious Monk, John Bryan, and Goldman. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVN. 